was a show that you were invited to exhibit in, in Milwaukee. Yes. Where you did, did, what made you decide to participate in that? I had no idea. Because that was a show where you were one of ten photographers who each nominated another photographer. Right, I nominated Diane. And, um, and I, I have no idea. You see, once in a while, maybe I give some photographs of it. I had no focus gallery, for instance. Well, I for forgot that I had a show at the focus gallery that makes it 20 photographs. The focus gallery wanted to have one woman show. I never wanted to give it. I gave her six photographs, and then I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. There was an aversion against being exhibited, against being written up, and against having publicity, and it was so from the beginning. And it is the first time in my life I stepped out a little bit. Recently? Yeah. You know what I'm trying to think of? I'm, I'm trying to think of this, your aversion to this kind of public aspect of it. I mean, you were, you were doing it for yourself, but you didn't want it displayed, or you didn't care really in a sense. You, you, weren't, you didn't want to have it exhibited. You didn't want to have the articles published about you. You had no desire for that. I, I'm thinking back to a discussion we were having about privacy. It has, I don't think it has anything to do with privacy. It seems to me that it's sort of like, um, during that period of time, it uh, becomes more of a private thing for you, in a sense. You see, I feel this way. I was thrown into photography without knowing what it was. I was published and put on a pedestal without even knowing what I had done. That is a very, very dangerous thing to do. I read once an article by Faulkner in Harper's Bazaar, where he said that that had almost happened to him and almost broken him down. And he said it in connection with Françoise Sagan, this young French woman who wrote this book, Bonjour, uh, Bonjour, I don't know what, Bonjour Tristesse. And he invited her to come to his estate and watched her. He put a typewriter in her room and he watched her saying, now she has had this tremendous success with the first book, and now she's going to write the second, and she's going to now be frantic about it or something, but nothing of the kind. She went there, she went to the beach, she played with a dog, she ate, no writing, no nothing, and he said, she is out of danger. But the danger was there for me, and mm -hmm. he told the story, how he was put on a pedestal, and too soon, without him understanding what he was doing, the same thing happened to me. So that was a shock. And then also to be, before I had an idea how to hold a camera, to be pushed as a star photographer into Harper's Bazaar, because that is what I was. And every assignment was something, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. <coughs> and then to be pushed by Ansel Adams into teaching without the slightest preparation. And then by doing this and doing that and doing this, not being able to eat. And most of the time to have to make a living for two. And then this teaching and teaching and teaching and the frantic of that and the fear of teaching and the stage fright every week for years and years and years. And all that was such a kind of a thing which goes against really producing and doing things. It was always the thing where I was pushed into this and pushed into that. And I had to do it because if I didn't do it, I would starve to death. And then I said to myself, and I wrote this letter to Beaumont Newhall. Once Beaumont Newhall wrote me a letter saying he wants six photographs, they will be very well treated, they will be exhibited there and there and there and there, 
<coughs> and he would be very happy to have them. And I wrote back to him that the day I will have the money to buy myself the paper, the day I will have the time to go into the dark room and work and not teach every, hour, every day five hours, then I will send him these photographs. This time I cannot do it. And he never forgave me that. And then wherever I had sent my photographs to any exhibition, they came back broken. It is only since the ASMP is there that these things are better. They are not good either. They have to replace it. Yulsman said once all he gets out of his photographs are broken print, of this exhibition are broken prints. And you see, this situation made it that I didn't want to know anything anymore about anything. I was forced to teach two-thirds of my time, and the rest I had to be in my husband's courses, and how was I going to work, and who's going to exhibit me, and then the situation was such that for years and years I printed on outdated paper. I had no money to buy myself paper, on little pieces like that. When I went to Rome, and when I went to this, I had no money for real paper. And then one day, Mrs. Powell, who had been a student of mine, called up Charlie Pratt, who was a student of mine, a wonderful man, and said to him, well, I do believe that I and you together, we can get enough money together in order that Lisette doesn't have to print on outdated paper. And he called me up and he said, I've never known anything like that, and all you have to do is to go to Willoughby's, or to wherever it is, and take out whatever you want. And I went out there, and I bought myself paper, and the next year I got the Guggenheim. And then I stopped that, and I gave him 10 or 12 photographs, 14 by 17 and 16 by 20, in exchange. Now when and I would like you to understand that the situation with the starvation, the situation with having to make a living, the situation with not being able freely anymore to photograph. I did not have illimited strength and energy. My energy went into teaching because of the enormous nervous fear I had of it, in spite of the fact that I really did it well. I mean, I don't know if you can judge by what I said, in which way I teach that this is not bad teaching, that is teaching on a pretty high level. And all that embittered me, and I didn't want to have anything anymore to do with people asking me to give them pictures, with people asking me to print them. I had no time to print, I had no paper to print, I didn't want anything anymore of that. What I wanted was to find, finally again, the calm and the pos possibility to go out and take my own photographs calmly by myself, which I had a little bit through the Guggenheim, unfortunately not enough because I got very ill and had to come back from Rome and be operated on, and the whole money got then it went into, into the hospital. But I wasn't very sick, I recovered. And then, now, since the portfolio, you see, I got great hopes that that day will come when I can work again, and it will come. But in between, the situation was impossible. Let me ask you a couple of things that you, you mentioned here, because you mentioned the Guggenheim, that was in 65. Did you, first of all, um, who who uh, supported you for that? Was Steichen very... Uh... It was very different. In the beginning, when I worked for Harper's Bazaar, I met a woman whose first name was Leon, and the second I didn't know. And she called me up and she said she was 
the daughter of Anna, a famous entertainer, the wife of Siegfried. Oh. I've forgotten her name. Yeah. But she was a wife of Siegfried, and she was one of the greatest entertainers in America. Mm -hmm. And she was a photographer, and she loved my work, and she was very rich, you know. And she wanted to make a business with me, but I didn't want to make a business with her. But we became friends, and one day she said, you know what, you ought to get a good hand. And I said, what's that? Mm -hmm. Well, an award. What is an award? An award is that. Mm -hmm. And she went to the phone. And she called somebody and she said, I have here a European photographer and I think she's very interesting and you have to see her work because I think she should get the good name. The answer on the phone was apparently it is too late mm -hmm. to ask her. And she said, no, it is not too late. I sent her tomorrow. And then she looked at me and she said, that is Mr. Mo. And he's a friend of mine, but he cannot refuse me to give you a Gunham because for 10 years I was a mistress of Gunham. And I said, oh really? <laughs> and I never went there. <laughs> I said, what kind of a corruption is this? <coughs> Stephen said, that is not possible, the Gunham is there. I said, I will tell you the story. The second time, Ansel Adams, and the new hall said, well, this girl should get the Guggenheim, there's no doubt. And the new hall sat down, and Ansel sat down, and they wrote the Guggenheim for me, because I, I knew what I was photographing, and they applied for me. At the same time, Dorothea Lam, who was a great admirer of my photographs, had a young guy next to her whose name was Homer Page. And Homer Page was a photographer of nothingness at that time. And when I came and I did not get the Guggenheim, but Homer Page got the Guggenheim. And at the same year I went to San Francisco for the second time, and Ansel Adams was at the station to read me, and the first thing he said was, do you know why you didn't get the Guggenheim? And I had forgotten about the Guggenheim, you know, I was not an award runner. I didn't believe in awards. Because there was here long, went to Mr. Moore and she was very, very ill after an operation and she took the plane, she came to New York and she said to Mr. Moore, if that is the last thing in my life I want, I want Homer Page to get the Guggenheim and he gave it to me. Hmm. That was my third, second experience. That was 1949 when Homer Page got the That's what it was. Then Steichen said to me, why don't you ask for a good name? And I said, no, thank you. And then he said, he beat the golden bridges. I guarantee you that you will get the good name. And I said, this is exactly what I don't want. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted Diane to get the good name. You know? And I wrote a very beautiful letter to the good name, explaining to the judges what Diane was, but at that time her photographs could have been turned down completely. Yesterday I, yesterday I threw this letter into the, into the garbage. I should have never done that. Yeah, we get that impulse, put them in the Jesus bag. Christ, now really. We'll give you some envelopes. And you know, that. that is when um, uh, Mr. Matthias, Jim Matthias became a friend of mine. He called me up and he said, 
I thank you for this letter. It was a very important letter. And Diane got the group. She got it in 63, which is two years before you ever got it either. But I, yeah, of course. Which is crazy I, in a way. It isn't crazy, darling, because I told you why. Mm. And, and also my refusal. Uh-huh. And then Diane, who was a wonderful girl, and really, if anybody has ever been grateful, Diane was. Diane said, you said, do you want to Guggenheim? And I said, now, God forbid. <laughs> Not that. <laughs> For this couple of thousand lousy dollars, I said I should go through that. Not in my life. But Diane went down to the Guggenheim, and she said I didn't want it. And she felt I should have it. And one day she called me up, and she said, you don't have to ask for it, but don't be impolite. They would like to talk to you about it and go down and talk with them. Mm-hmm. And I went down and I said, you see, it is very simple. I have fallen on my leg and have broken cartilage in my knee. And in the last two years, I did very little photographing, only sitting in movies. I photographed movies in the most extraordinary way. <coughs> or sitting on benches in the park and then somebody passes by, I take a picture and just so. But I haven't really gotten Guggenheim pictures in the last two years, and this is very important. And otherwise I talked them out of it. And the person who led me to the elevator said, I'm absolutely convinced, Mrs. Model, that you do have pictures in the last two years for the Guggenheim. I said, no, I don't have them. And then I came home and I looked through my negatives, and by golly, I really found five or six very good pictures. And then it was Avedon, and I don't know whom, who called me up and they said, really, is that this high time you asked for a Guggenheim and also Sharkovsky? And then I said to myself, it's a strange thing, how this Guggenheim falls on me. And I'm superstitious in these things. I have the feeling if something comes toward you in a very extraordinary way, you cannot say no. And I applied with a very, very extraordinary, I think, kind of a thing I had started to work on, which is called Glamour, the image of our image. And that I will explain to you one day. And I brought them this kind of a title, and Diane helped me to write it. And it became a very beautiful project. And then I forgot about it, I think. And I went even to see my psychologist friend, not he's not my psychologist, a great friend of mine. And I said, you know, I really don't want the Guggenheim. I have the feeling there is something very wrong with awards. You give up a lot of things, and then you have maybe to work on for a year, and they are in the same mess after a year after, and it is even worse. And I really don't want that. And he said, no, I don't think it's a good idea. I think that your capacities of working and making a living has to be built up in a completely different way, but not through a war. But I got the garden. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And they called me up and they said it was impossible not to give it to you. <laughs> they apologized, but, uh, so but they, they still had to give it to you anyway. No, they said the pictures were such that it was impossible not to give it to you. And I gave them 68 photographs. And they were very good. <coughs> 68? Yeah. Now they ask for 20. At that time you had to give them 72, 75, whatever. Mm. <coughs> and of course the sponsors were extraordinary. 
didn't bring me luck. Because <coughs> I got sick. Now, did, were you, you say you were going to go to Rome, I'm going to have, or was it I, Los Angeles? Uh, Los Angeles first, and Rome the, the next time. And f I intended to go, I was in Las Vegas, Los Angeles, San Francisco. In little towns around, you know, in California. When you got to go behind Yeah, no, the next year. Mm. I couldn't walk yet with this broken company. <coughs> and then I went to Rome, and I intended to go to Rome, to Switzerland, to Paris, to France, and then I got sick. But I photographed a great deal before I got sick. Now, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm not quite 67. This is after you got to Guggenheim, you, you did this job? I went to Rome before, in 53. And then I went back. And when you went back, was that with the money from Guggenheim? Yeah. What, or what was left over after your illness? Or? No, I got ill after. Ah. <laughs> so you were awarded it officially in 1965, but you yeah. actually used the money or got the money yeah. uh, the next year or the almost, almost two years after yeah. that time? Yeah. And then Matthias told me, we advise you very much to ask for a second Guggenheim. Did you, but you never did that? Didn't want to have <laughs> I don't want to have anything to do with awards. <coughs> and I got, but in between I asked for small awards, Diane recommended. I got every award I asked for. Yeah, now I've seen reference to two of them. One is the Ingram Merrill Award. What is, what is that? That was a small award, and then there was a bigger one of this. In the caps I got, and then I also got one that was, at that time, $3,000, which pretty much, it was this Nagi gallery, and they were in connection with some people who gave this award, and you delivered the photographs to the gallery, you never knew who gave the award. And they didn't even open, they only read the write-ups, they didn't even open the photographs, and I got the award. Now, this was just a money award? Yeah. Was this, was this this Bosco Foundation Award, is that what that's called? Or I no, the Bosco Foundation was a very small one. I got that too. Just an honorary kind of model? No. The Bosco Foundation was a very small thing, which gave $500, $1,000. Then there was a Mary Ingram that was much more. And then there was this one. This keyboard in Ireland. Yeah, which was much more. And these you heard about mostly through other people you didn't... Oh, Diane gave me the addresses and she said we would get there and I really got it. Were these things that she had gotten and she knew about them? She knew about them. She knew about it from... Israel, who know everything about this world. Marvin Israel. Yeah, Marvin. But I would have never had the idea even to ask for an award. It is, uh, it's not in my makeup. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back, because uh, as uh, we were talking, you mentioned uh, Charles Pratt, mm -hmm. and um, as someone who was helpful in terms of the paper and one of your students. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that he also helped, this gallery I mentioned, this image gallery that Larry Siegel ran, he helped support that at one point. And I guess he was, in a very inconspicuous way, helpful to a lot of people. Yes, he was. And I believe he was helpful to Bernice at one point, uh, dry mining press or something, you know, mm -hmm. so, you know, something very useful like that. Uh, do you recall when he was a private student approximately, or was he one of your mm -hmm. very first private students? He was the first student at the new school. The first the class? The first class. And then he came to one of my private courses. So you would have met him when you started at the <coughs> And then one day, he, he had a terrible heart attack. Just a couple years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And after that, he wrote me a letter and he said that he didn't have the slightest intention to die. Mm -hmm. So 
he will give me $5,000 for everything I have done for him and also for what kind of a person I am and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that was that. And then when he died, he left me $15,000 in recognition for what has been done. Wasn't his own photography mostly kind of large camera? Yes, but this became a very good photographer. Didn't he do a book on Cape Cod or something like that? Yeah, many books. And he left, it was very touching how he left money to people who had done something for him. Absolutely incredible. <coughs> he was from the, the Pratt family, the Pratt Institute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, was he, did he live in New York most of the time? Um, yeah, he had a place in Cape Cod also? He had a place in Connecticut and a place in Maine. Well, he, he lived, but Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he, summer and winter he was always out, <coughs> and in summer he was away for four months or so. It was terrible that he died, you know. How old he, man was he when he was? He was 50, but he looked 42, and he was like itself. When he came in somewhere, I mean, the laughter and the, the vivacity, and it was unbelievable. That was really a shock. A terrible shock. One couldn't imagine this man dead. That was the 23rd of May. Was that about one or two, two, two last, two. last summer. Just last summer. Yeah. 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 And the woman from the micro-gallery called me up and she said... Mars Nykerk? Yeah. yeah. And she said, uh, Charlie Pratt just dropped dead. He went swimming in the pool and dropped dead. <coughs> and call up whomever you think you can call. You are telling me, when I was playing the slot machines in, in the window, you know, where I gambled the, the whole money of ladies on general out, I suddenly, <laughs> I suddenly became a gambler when I had stopped photographing. Uh -huh. It was not to be believed. I never knew I was a gambler, but I was, and I am. And the slot machines, oh, they fascinated me. And that is why John Morris was afraid that I would gamble all the money away. They could have had it. That's the other reason he would say he would come out to get you if you stayed. That's right. And the slot machines, they are absolutely personalities. You have no idea. Some of them hate you. Some of them love you. Some of them work this way. Some of them work that way. They have a different sound, a different character. Absolutely for sure. Did you try and photograph in the casinos at all out there? Well, they didn't let me, only very shortly. You can't go in. Yeah. They let me photograph through, I mean, uh, Ladies Home Journal. 
because everything was cut off, cut off, so yeah. you can see it. <coughs> if, you, if you had had uh, Flash when you were uh, in Nice, would you have tried to get into the casinos? Oh, you couldn't. Even worse. It was impossible. More controlled. <coughs> At that time, no worker was permitted to gamble in France, Monte Carlo. No. And no employee of a certain amount of money they earned could gamble. That was not permitted. Hmm. You had to be dressed in a very elegant way to go into the casino. They also pr protected the worker from gambling. So they went down and gambled, ga somewhere gambled uh, <laughs> with his friends or uh, played cards. <laughs> we had some. some but kind of I was fascinated by Las Vegas. Absolutely fascinating. The Las Vegas and, and LA and Rome were all part of the the uh, this glamour Definitely. project. <coughs> you said it. <coughs> Hollywood, Las Vegas. <coughs> and in Hollywood I didn't find anything. And I said, Where where is Hollywood? Right where you are. What's this? You are thirty years late. <coughs> <laughs> Nothing. It's all over. So it, you didn't spend much time there, or...? I did spend maybe a month or six weeks there, but I couldn't find anything. <coughs> that's where you, you said you lived in the hotel, or...? With, uh, with all this... Uh, oh, that's right. Oh, that was something. Who, wait, who, 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 was in, who was in that? What was the... That was a hotel that was built by a big movie star. Beautiful. <coughs> For weekends, with all the stars, with a little theater, and with a stage and a magnificent garden, and then everything fell down. <coughs> Very run down when you were there. Oh. I admire myself for having lived there. <coughs> <coughs> well, in New York, we should be able to do it, I guess. No, that was a dangerous place. You, s you seem to end up in these places. It's something. So, how long were you in Las Vegas? They threw me out from one casino after the other. <coughs> Because <coughs> I <coughs> if that comes into the <coughs> tape recorder, it's not so hard. Can you cut it out? It doesn't matter. Um, you can only stay in a casino for eight or ten days maximum. If you're not a big gambler, then you have to move. It doesn't pay for them. You have years ago. They need the rooms. And so I had to go from one casino to another casino to another casino maybe four weeks or so, I would have stayed forever. <coughs> and you see, if I could have photographed the gambling places in Las Vegas, I could, I could have done things. It was just for me. So where did you photograph? <coughs> I was permitted by the big casinos to photograph the big shows one night. Mm. Then I could walk around in the streets of Reno during the night, and I could photograph the gambling places from the outside. <coughs> then there were these fantastic churches, you know, these little churches with a marriage thing. There are lots of things to photograph in those ways. And I never gave up hope that I could go in. I was in contact with the Chamber of Commerce, and I said to them, you have to procure that for me. They couldn't. Then I went to the directors of the casinos, and I said, I sign that no photograph will ever be published without your consent. I've done that before. <coughs> they sent me to another director, another director, another director. 
The answer was always no. And then the Chamber of Commerce was very nice to me, but they had enough. They gave me a book to read, which was called The Green Felt Jungle. And that was written by two journalists who lived in Las Vegas and who opened up the whole mafia business. And you then understood that everything was mafia. Everything ended up with a mafia. <clears throat> and there was everything was completely criminal and corrupt from A to C. They had to run after having written that book. <clears throat> and they gave me that to read, and then I finally understood there was nothing I could do. Only one day I went into one casino where fantastic paintings, murals, signs, writings on the walls, and I said to the casino owner, I, I would like to photograph that. And you know, these casino owners are very intelligent people. And he said, and what guarantees me that you are not going to photograph people? Well, I said, kindly look at my face. I'm sure that you can judge people. And he let me do it. I've never enlarged all this. <coughs> so what then I photographed a little bit of surroundings, you know, the old gold diggers and all kinds of things over there, but nothing interesting to me. What were you photographing in Rome? That was in the same glamour thing. In Rome, my dear, I, dis I wanted... <coughs> they really asked me to go to Rome the first time in order to photograph the people. In 53? Yeah. That was a Harper's assignment? No, but it was suggested, you see, that I do that. And also that I go to the French Riviera and see what I can find now. Uh, did, did they pay for that trip? <coughs> did Harper's no, I was invited by a student of mine to accompany her. That was a bad deal. And when I, and then when I came to Rome, I discovered the statues in the streets, mm -hmm. and the monuments, and the museums, and whatever was in the museums. Mm -hmm. And I had forgotten about the people of Rome forever. I got suddenly fascinated about the Romans, the ruins, the monuments, the statues in the streets, in the Foro Romano, and I could have stayed there forever. This was the second time? First time. First time. <coughs> But I couldn't stay there. <clears throat> I had a business in Milan where I had to sell my properties and so forth and so forth. And I did a lot and a lot of work. And I never felt it was really good. Berenice always said it's the only time she saw Rome. And I was not satisfied with this photograph. So then with the Guggenheim, I wanted to go back. And I was unbelievably lucky. I had friends over there, owners of galleries and things like that who said to me, are you crazy to go into museums and photograph the stuff everybody has seen and everybody has photographed? I will, I will direct you to private collections first, and they have millions of things much better than any museum. And second, they are in Sicily and near Naples and near this and in Florence, hidden caves. And there are caves where there are huge statues of pre-Roman mothers with five or six children, things completely unknown. There are catacombs nobody has ever been in, and we are going to let you in. And there was a prince such and such, or senior, I think, and he had the power to do that. 
and it would have been the most unbelievable thing for me to do. And that's when I got sick. Oh, and you know, my dear, I tell you one thing. I felt that that was unjust, that that was something that should not have happened to me. After all these years where I couldn't do what I wanted, and suddenly I had found that. And then I had to come back. You see, it was that in Rome they thought I had cancer. Mm -hmm. And I came to New York and they said I never had it. But they had to operate it in order to find out. What was it? It was a simply hysterectomy and nothing else. Mm -hmm. Nothing else. And then these physicians here got in contact with the physicians over there. And they said, that is not so. And the others said, yes, it is so. And then they said, it's kind of a false alarm of how serious it was. <coughs> hmm? Sort of, it, the, the seriousness of it was exaggerated at first. So you thought it was It worse. was not exaggerated. It was believed that it was. It had to be examined. It had to be operated first in Rome in order to find out. And they had another judgment about it than, than the pathologists here. But the thing was that I said to this people in Rome to this physician, listen, I said, I have no time for these kind of things now. Look, look at these letters I have here. I, I can't just stop working. Can't you operate on me in three months? And I said, are you insane? In 24 hours. And then when I came here, to go there, and I wasn't insured. Now, the, the time you were ill, was this on the second trip? Second. This was in 67. Yeah. Don't believe I was ill. I wasn't ill at all. I mean, when yeah. you had the operation. Yeah. But um, the first time you were over there. The first time I was over uh, there, I couldn't, st I couldn't stay very long because I had a very important business in Milano to do. I had to sell my property. And I was in Rome maybe three, four weeks, not more. But oh, you still had property, family yeah. property? After, after the war, you still had, had <coughs> title to that. Uh -huh. And you liquidated it all at that time? To not all, until, for instance, last year there was still some money coming in. Is this mostly a farming type of a thing? Uh, or uh, vineyard, there or are papers. No, there are, uh, you know, land. Uh -huh. And this land was worked by peasants and it was rented to peasants and big properties and also papers, you see. It's almost a feudal, old, old arrangement. That's what it was. Do you know how long that, that property was in your family? Oh, uh, maybe several generations, because the administrators went from father to son, from mm -hmm. son to so You know, interesting, I, I was thinking as you were talking about your childhood, uh, and this property thing made me think of it. Um, I don't know if you ever met this man or what you think of him, but I recently in San Francisco met uh, Willem Kreis, who is uh, Czechoslovakian, from, from Prague. And, um, you know, he's sort of a surrealistic kind of photographer. Possibly you've seen some of his work, maybe not. He hasn't been widely exhibited. He's a man who's about 50. It's hard to judge his age exactly. And um, he came from a very rich family in Prague that, that had land holdings all around Prague that went back to the 13th century. And he told some stories of, of he was just an absolutely spoiled, rotten brat, you know. And he told a story once about uh, uh, going to some ball with his family. And he, he arrived early. He came, he had his own chauffeur or something, and he arrived early. He was still quite just a young boy. And the doorman didn't know who he was and wouldn't let him in. 
And just as the Doran was quarreling with him, you know, and telling him to go away and leave the grown-ups alone, kind of a thing, his father came. And the doorman knew who his father was. Everyone in the town knew who his father was. And the doorman was paralyzed with fear. Maybe there's a butler at the door. Just paralyzed with fear, you know, that he had said such horrible things to, to the son of this man. And Chris went in, and, and he was just uh, awful to the guy. You know, the man would say, can I get you something? Can I bring? And he'd say, bring me this. And he'd bring it and say, that's, not, that's wrong. Take it away. And he's just, you know, and he tells the story now, kind of the way you were saying, he was, he's so glad that it all went away. Exactly. Because you know? exactly. he says he never knew, uh, he says he never knew if anyone liked him until he was poor. Because everyone always liked him. Everyone always acted as though they liked him, whether they did or not. That's right. He never knew. That's right. And uh, even, in fact, the person he's learned photography from, sort of as a hobby when he was a young boy, was a photographer who could never quite pay his rent to, to increase his father. But, but always was very kind to the son and was teaching him photography and would almost literally babysit with him on the weekend. They would go places, you know. And as a result, his father never made the man always pay his rent on time and he was always way behind, you know. And Chris was never even sure about that man who he was fairly close with. Yeah, it's like that. You see Charlie Pratt, <coughs> as many friends that he had, but there was always the rich man who was insecure. Definitely so. I, the, I guess the logical question that comes from that is, is there a solution to that? Is there somewhere between being poor enough that you must use up all your time trying to make ends meet and you don't have time to photograph and having so much money that your, your life is distorted to a point where you can't photograph anyway? I didn't understand that. Well, we're talking about kind of we're talking about two extremes. One where uh, uh, photographer has no money to photograph. Yeah, no money to photograph, no no time really, because he's spending his time Maybe earning a living. And this other situation where rich. most of the people who yeah who uh, are are rich don't seem to be able to use the time that they in fact have. They could that, for instance, for Charlie Pratt was a great problem. For instance, to decide that he was going to photograph, he didn't give himself the permission. And then he had to prove that he was like anybody else, that he was published. He would never publish a book and pay for it. He had to wait until the publisher wanted it, because if the publisher didn't want it, then it wasn't good, because it, he wouldn't pay that out of his own pocket. And it's only in the last years that he became certain, to a certain degree, that he was a photographer, but before, not at all. He felt that like a luxury boy doing that. You know, rich people don't have it so easy. I know that. Yeah. So I, I've always wondered, you know, is there some place in between those, those two extremes? That Certainly, I think that many Americans are very intelligent. The way they use their money and they work very hard. They are very hardworking, rich Americans. Or any of the, do you know of any of those that are that are good artists though? That's I mean, can it, can it work together? Can you do both? For instance, Charlie Pratt would have become an excellent photographer. It, he was really growing and he was terrific. Beginning to, to yeah. and there is that. this kind of a guy whose name is Shirley Booth or Shirley Burden. But, huh? Burden who did the Elvis. Yeah, yeah, in Los Angeles. 
he's an immensely rich man and he has an advertising company and he photographs and the man is so insecure and has such an inferiority complex. Grace Meyer tells me that he doesn't believe she has ever made a good photograph and he has. But uh, then there are people who have a lot of money and they are very useful and they work very hard. That's all right. Someone else I was just thinking of that we mentioned that just in passing was Nimi said a minute ago before this uh, we we're we have some kind of general questions about uh, this whole thing about grants and government support of the arts. And you were talking about, you know, how, how you personally feel about the, the Guggenheim thing, and, and you mentioned something about uh, the fact that one, one year of that kind of support is really kind not of a enough. crazy thing to have happen it's to you. It's not enough. In Holland, when they give it to people, they give it for three years. They give them the money to travel, to live in countries where they have to live. Where is they this? pay in Holland, and they pay the studios for them for three years. And then they renew it if it's worthwhile. But one year, this is really, I know a guy who had got the Guggenheim, he was the man who built up the design department or the graphics department, I don't know what, in, at Cooper Union. He had built the whole thing up, it was an excellent teacher and so forth. <coughs> and then he got the Guggenheim. <coughs> and they promised him that they would keep his job for one year. And after year, one year, they didn't give it to him. He starved to death, he didn't know anymore what to do. Right here, last year, two years ago. I don't know the name of the man. Hmm. And I met him and he said, he's simply terrible. He doesn't know what to do. They promised a job and they gave it to somebody else. Uh, I, uh, I was just thinking, I, I just remembered who I was thinking of when we were talking about being rich and about galleries and about money in general. Um, I was going to ask about Stieglitz, who was some of all of those things. Um, Stiglitz was rich? Well, not rich, but who could, uh, independent, let's just say, you know, who could, who could continue to run that gallery and, and, and do it, whether it was particularly, you know, and help support the artists that he uh, I think it was Dorothy Norman who helped him a great deal. But one way or another managed to do that. I, I have been told that Stiglitz had an independent income that allowed him to do that. Um, I don't personally know but I'm wondering, he, he didn't die until 1946. He had been in the country almost 10 years. Have so you had any contact with him? If, if no. Newhall sent you to Stiglitz. <coughs> they wanted to. But then I heard that Stiglitz really was horrible through Berenice. Mm. Before you ever got to him, you heard Berenice. I, didn't, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm not the one to run to famous people. Mm -hmm. And of course, when they sent me to Berenice and Portsmouth, I didn't even know who they were. Did you ever meet him? No. You never met him? Did you ever go to any of his galleries to no. look at work? I didn't know anything about it. I, did, I really didn't know who he was. Of course, in the, in the period of time, well, he would have, he wasn't showing very much photography in the period of time that you would have been able to see it anyway. It was, I think he showed Ansel and Elliot Porter. Elliot Porter? 
Yeah. Looks like it was better food. That was the only photographer he showed him. Maybe his own ones. Well, Ansi is really not good. He's a wonderful guy, but I don't know why he photographs that way. Yeah. Do you think that his work with, with, with people, the work that he has done photographing people, is better? He cannot do that. He's not capable of it. He knows that. Did you ever talk with Ansel about, about um, music? Because he had been a dancer <coughs> first. Yes, apparently he was a very fine musician. About the relationship between them and photography? Or? I don't believe it. Because he's, you know, he's written about uh, a kind of an interesting analogy where he said that uh, the negative is like the score, in a sense. That the print is like the performance of the score. That seemed to make some sense. We thought of that particularly with respect to um, the idea of uh, someone else printing your negatives, such as Gerd or uh, the other uh, Benson. Know, the difference between their, you know, performance. their performance of your Yes, of your and their answer has very interesting ideas. Because he told that in his lecture at the Metropolitan Museum, to my great amazement. Somebody said, do you think that somebody else can print somebody else's work? And I would have thought that Ansel would say, no, only the photographer can really print it. But he said, yes, of course, and different people in a different way, if they are left, if they are left free to do it, not if they have to come very close to the print. And then he said, it also would be very interesting to see how to print old photographs on modern material. And modern material on old ways of prints and so forth. And that these are very different ways of interpretation. And I absolutely agree with him. I think the photographer has one way of printing his own work. But then there could be, once Berenice printed my work, I had a sick arm. I had an infection in the arm, and she wanted to have a couple of prints in the ACA gallery or something like that. And I'd just taken pictures in the Lower East Side. These two women, for instance, was one of them. And she printed it for me, and it was fantastic. Whatever prints came out of that. I was, I'm sorry, I threw them away. I threw everything out. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm going to buy you a waistband. <laughs> I'm going to put it right here, and then every two months I'm going to come down. One, yesterday I, destroyed this letter I'd written to Guggenheim, where really I've already used it twice, for Diane's sake, in a most successful way, Life magazine and over there. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, you should throw them in a little special waste basket, and I'll it's come really every so often, I'll, I'll save it somewhere else, so you don't have to worry about <laughs> it. Because it's really a... Yeah, it is terrible. But you see, Sander has to come very close to what I'm doing in this case. As a matter of fact, he came by instinct to it because he never saw my prints. Well, that's that's what I think is is oh, very interesting. Very. Is that you know, like when I first talked to you about him, you said something like um, he prints more like me than I do. In some ways. Which the only know. the only thing I have to object in his printing so far is that it is a little bit too dark, 
and not enough light is coming into the prints. That's the only thing. I have to go to Washington and work that out with him. Yeah, you've just begun, really. If yeah. you keep working with him, it should be wonderful. I have never worked with him. I have to go there. Yeah. I, I'm curious, uh, were any of those, all the, all the photographs in that show were either 16 by 20 or some, some were 20 by 24, mm -hmm. a few. Um, had you ever printed those that big? No. And especially some prints I hadn't made at all. And others only very small. I didn't like all these prints. So that that might account for some of the some of the difference actually. But you do like the big size, though. You. I think that <coughs> they asked me when I started to print eleven by fourteen, which was by very big at that time. Everybody printed eight by ten. What was the matter with me? And I said, "Damn it! I see them life size." <laughs> you know, and I think. Uh, Bigger my photo, my good photographs, only the good ones. Bigger they are, stronger they get. The other photographs have to be very small. Do, do you think that every picture has a certain size that's best for? Yeah. Of the same photographer, many pictures probably have the same size. <coughs> and certain photographers, pictures have to have many different sizes. And the Helen Levitt at that size is no good. It's always been interesting to me, this whole question of size, because Very important. it only occurs in photography. That is one of the greatest things in photography. But you can vary the size of a single image. You can change it. Any From that to the Empire State Building. Yeah. That is a tremendous thing. And you, know, you just can't do that in any other medium, except yeah. using a photographic process. And I think this is a terrific kind of thing that isn't used enough. So. The other thing that, that was interesting about that show in Washington was the, the mounting of those photographs, the fact that they were led. Yeah, that is what I want. What, what's, what, uh, why, why do you like them better that way than that? I have that? no idea, because with other people I don't like that at all. <clears throat> I think they end just there, and everything that is put around white carpet is impossible. It takes away doesn't fit. So I don't want that. Yeah, it would seem like the one good thing about mounting with the border is that it protects the photograph from getting nicked or broken as much. Oh, yeah. that, of course. Yeah. That is a terrible problem. <coughs> In the portfolio, for instance, to put some flush. But you see, they could be put on a photographic paper, not on cardboard. They don't want cardboard. No cardboard, but another uh, double. Another sheet of photographic paper. Yes, and then a small black line, see, around, and that would protect it. And Lum is too stingy to do it. That is what I wanted. Mm. Anybody who is taking these portfolio photographs in the sand 25 times is going to break the edges. That's for sure. You know, speaking of, of making the, the larger and larger prints, I think uh, it's uh, I worked uh, I, I should say as a for uh, oh uh, two months as a as a printer in a commercial printing house in Michigan, making large prints, working on a large, very big and like this one I was describing that Bernice just ordered, <coughs> and making prints that were anywhere from twenty by twenty four up to four feet by eight feet 
or so. It's very difficult. And if you have the right equipment, it's not hard at all. Mm -hmm. You have the, a wall that's set up to do it and the large tanks to develop it. Mm -hmm. And it was, I really enjoyed it. Um, physically, just doing it, it was, it was, it was uh, more interesting than doing smaller work in this particular situation. But of course, the, the negative is a, can be somewhat of a limitation in this. And I just wondered, because the way you came into photography, um, you didn't have initially at least a strong technical background. It was not your... Not I wondered all. how you how you began to deal with that. Um, By myself. Uh, with a strong sense of, of tonality. Better and better and better and better. Did you just experiment like with different films or just do a test of your own? Uh, <coughs> I made innumerable tests with papers, with films, extraordinary amount of tests. And you know, for instance, I don't see my photographs only large. I see them also very small. Very small, not bigger than that. I like think three by four inches. Three by four. I think that also would give an, a very good result. And even smaller. Very small, just like this. Almost a contact, right? A little bit bigger, not much. And I'm wondering... Um, it's very difficult to make. Like, in terms of the, the most recent work you've done, are you working, like, strictly with triax or something like that now? Pretty yes, I have worked with triax and with strobe. I use plus X because it's a strike. It was too strong. Now I'm getting very exhausted with my mouse. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> <laughs> We've been working your mouth pretty heavily since 3 o'clock. Exactly. Would you like to stop? Yes. Well, you should say so. It's, it's very awesome. nice that you're not tired, but now I'm exhausted. Okay, I can't well. speak anymore. The words don't come out. <laughs> well, well, that's, that's pretty much the time to quit. You should have another glass of sherry. <laughs> no. No, we'll have. When do you want to come tomorrow? Well, um, whatever is uh, your convenience. Uh, 3 o'clock seems to work well. Yeah. That's, that's yes, good. very good. Yeah. You don't want to start earlier, I assume. That's, no, no, that's not for people. You need, you need your rest after for your mouth. Yes. No, I don't sleep so good, but I need a lot of time in the morning, and I want to go out of the mood. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're actually uh, Let me put this we're actually enjoying this uh, this schedule. It's we're actually, we get up in the morning and, and we have a little time to get our, our thoughts, yeah, get our heads together, and our papers scattered <laughs> up. That's very good. All the people who called up between 3 o'clock and now. <laughs> They'll all be over at your door in about a half an hour wondering what can happen to you. You call up the telephone company and say it's out of order. order. Nothing is out of order. You are very thorough and very serious people, I must say. Well, we, we feel that's the only way to do it. I, I do agree. We would not, uh, you know, I, I tell you, I, I have... You know what I love? Hmm. More than anything else, newspaper reproduction. What is this? This is a Xerox. It's marvelous. <laughs> this, this is a Xerox of Infinity. Danny, Infinity that magazine. Is, that is a way I want my pictures to be printed. What am I going to do? Go to a Xerox machine. The 16 by 20s? Um, there, there are some that will do it that large. Let me see. The biggest, no, 14 by 17, 14 by 18. Well, I don't have these prints. So what am I going to Get do? The magazine. <laughs> that's re that's Xerox. But you know, this is what I love most. That is absolutely magnificent. It, it does have a certain... Uh, that has a lot of character which goes very well with my photographs. Tough. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. It has a kind of a gritty... Yes. Yes. Yeah, it has this the same... This is a way I wish I could print. It has the same kind of quality that, that the the uh, things that, that Gerd printed have when they're that big because the grain comes out and it's it has very this... very sharp. Yeah, very sharp grain. 
But I'm sure that there must be some uh, Xerox machines uh, 16 packing, you know? Yeah, they have, they have machines that can enlarge. Uh, you put on a, a, a print that size and it will enlarge to, I think 14 by 18 is the biggest. But I don't have prints of that size. You don't, you have the negatives of that. Though. Yeah. I'm not going to print that. Oh, I, <coughs> I only have some 11 by 14s. And any, any zero session like that? Yeah. No, not no. just any. We, we tried to find one uh, uh, today in uh, this place that has color Xerox, which, are, which was a new thing to us. They can do slides. Put a slide in a slide projector and it projects into the Xerox machine, you get color Xerox. I've seen that. Um, but they, I know they exist, but they didn't have one. But so I, I really know. do but believe that this is a character of my photograph. And not at all pretty. I like that much better than any print. <laughs> well, you may have it if you'd like. To, you think, to think about. No, you may have it. Uh, we have, I think, maybe two of those. Yeah. Certainly, I'm going to go to, to town with that. <laughs> well, there are photographers now that work only in Xerox. You know, they don't make other kind of prints. What can be done? I think this is fascinating. I, yeah, I, lo I love the Xerox machine, you know, I have to tell you what, what I have a, I, ha I had a, a woman who works in the office with me, had a little snapshot of a neighborhood boy, just a boy standing in front of a house, and she wanted a Xerox of it for someone, so I made one, and then I Xeroxed the Xerox. You can do that too? I took the paper out of the machine and I put it in where I put the photograph. What happens then? And I kept doing it, and, it, and gradually the image begins to degenerate. And begins to, to become just black and white and harsher and harsher. It's like if you, if you take a print and copy it on, on uh, line film or well, the high contrast film and then recopy and it and recopy it. It gets harsher and rays <laughs> begin to drop out. Very Actually, you know, you get the structure of the, of the tones starts to be the structure of like little lightning bolts because it's the electrostatic yeah. quality it's of the interesting. It's really wild. And every so often I go and I do another one. I go for, I've got like 14 generations from the original to this one. Uh, next time I'll come to New York, I'll bring it if I, I remember. Love to. It, you, I you would love to. Or maybe I'll just mail it to you. Because so I can just go in an envelope. It really, it's really. It, you know, I have the feeling there is a great future in all these kinds of things. This is not just nothing. Yeah, oh, I'm sure there is. Well, silver isn't going to be around forever anyway, you know, silver is. Well, if they stop the paper and they have only the plastic paper, what are photographers going to do? Yeah, the stuff, the resin coated paper? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't care for that. And if they take away the silver paper, what's going to happen? Maybe this. Maybe this. But in order to do but in order to do this, you have to have a silver print. You have to have a yeah, the film at least has to be silver, yeah. No. Where do you live? Soho? That's where we're staying in Soho, yeah. Where, what's the name of this street? Uh, Crosby Street.